Amen. All right, turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, continuing our verse-by-verse study. Hey, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, we just go verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book through the whole Bible. And so I want to encourage you to come on Thursday nights. Thursday nights we are in uh, 1 Chronicles, and I want to encourage you to come uh, this Thursday. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. We started in Matthew on Sunday mornings, and now we find ourselves in 2 Peter chapter 1. So I know we just prayed, but let's pray again for our time in the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we go to your Word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We want the Word of God, not the words of man. And so Lord, minister to every heart. No one's here by chance. We're all here by divine appointment. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, So I'll go over the outline in a minute if you didn't get one. I hope you did on the way in. But this morning, we're going to continue to look. This is from the Apostle Peter writing to the early church who was enduring great persecution. They've been persecuted for their faith. Many of them have had to run for their lives. This is the time when Caesar Nero is in power. Christians are being fed to lions. Christians are being covered in pitch and set on fire. Christians are being thrown into prison. So a lot of Christians were afraid to be recognized as Christians because they knew it could cost them their lives. And we could all say they were being kind of wimpy, but if you come into church next Sunday, meant you might be fed to lions. I think a few of you would be watching on live stream. Amen? But the reality is that Paul writes this letter to encourage them. And as we saw in 1 Peter, he talks about that this suffering is for but a little while. And the only way we can endure the suffering and the difficulties and the trials of this life and do it with joy is to have an eternal perspective. You know, the reality is that this, this life is but a vapor of time. And what really matters is what have you done with God's son? And one of the things that we saw in last week's text, he talked about the security we have in Christ and the promise of eternal life. And this is a question for all of you. You don't need to respond out loud, but I want you to think about it. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? And is that something that's important to you? And if it's not, it should be. Amen. Because heaven is better, and we're going to be, quote, dead a lot longer than we're alive. This is, a, this is a vapor of time compared to eternity. And so he's encouraging them in the midst of persecution that this suffering is for but a little while, that God is faithful and God's on the throne. But when we get to 2 Peter, now there's another problem. Along with persecution from the outside, there's false teachers creeping on the inside who are teaching a false gospel. See, the enemy, Satan, seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And Satan is real, but he's a defeated foe. Amen. But one of the things that he does is he appears as an angel of light, and he'll bring a false gospel. And that false message that he brings will try to dissuade people or draw people away from the true and living God. So these people have lost their homes in most cases. They've lost their jobs. Many of them have been disowned by their families because they've walked away from Judaism, have given their life to the Lord. They recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and now they're facing this great persecution. And so the apostle Peter, you know, their father in the faith, if, they, if you will, is now writing this letter to encourage them. Hey, guys be, guys, be encouraged. God is still on the throne. God is faithful. Don't allow this to distract you or draw you away. So there's inward corruption of false teachers and outward uh, attacks from the world. So these false teachers then and today will often do this. And let me just clarify this real quick, and then we'll get into the text. False teachers all have something in common. They have, for the most part, had something where they were out in the wilderness somewhere, and some angel showed up and talked to them and gave them some new message. And they come back with this message that nobody else heard. And you have entire religions built around 
you know, Joseph Smith in the Mormon church. He was out in the middle of the woods and some angel supposedly showed up to him and gave him these golden plates that he lost. And all of a sudden now, you have sadly have people following the, the book of Mormon, which contradicts the word of God. And this is what you see with false teachers. They, they have these, one person saw it. Well, guess what? When Jesus came, he was seen by thousands, Amen. And he ministered the truth for 30, he was on this planet for 33 years. For three years, he was in ministry. They saw his miracles. They saw all the prophecy, over 300 prophecies. We're going to talk about that. All fulfilled by Jesus Christ, where he would be born, how he would live, how he would die. All fulfilled by Christ. And by the way, he died publicly and he rose from the dead publicly, again, seen by thousands. Then he ascended into heaven, seen by thousands. And guys, he's coming back. He fulfilled prophecy and he's not like any other false teacher who again came up with something that glorifies themselves. But again, he always pointed to the Father. That's our Savior. Amen. That's who we follow, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So too often, the cults always do that. They make Jesus less and man more. I'm not just picking on the Mormon church, but it's easy. The Mormon church, they believe they're going to be gods of their own planet. That's pretty, that, sign, sign me up for that. Hey, you're going to be God of your own planet, and you're going to have as many wives as you want, and you're going to populate an, an entire planet, and they're all going to worship you. Okay, I'm in. That's contrary to the word of God. Amen. So we need to make sure we see what the word of God says. False teachers then and today, again, make that focus. So they have empty man-centered words that always glorifies men instead of honoring the Lord. So if you have your outline, grab it. And here's what we're going to look at today. The more sure word of prophecy. We're going to look at the prophetic truth that proves that Jesus Christ is God. Some people say, how do you know the word of God is true? And I have people tell me, I've been a pastor for 34 years. They find out you're a pastor. They love to tell you, well, I don't believe in that book. And now you love to say, have you ever read it? Well, not really. <laughs> but it's filled with contradictions. And I say, name one. And then they can't. And then I say, well, so you're an expert on a book you've never read and you believe in contradictions that aren't there and you're going to put your eternity in that focus? You want to, spend, you want to focus your eternity on that? That's tragic, amen? Now look, we love everybody. The Lord's desire is that none should perish, no, not one. He loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you. So we're going to look at the more sure word of prophecy, the truth of God's word. We've got three points this morning. First, the truth that we need to be reminded of constantly. I know if you've been coming to church for any length of time, I'm, I'm repetitive. Amen. Amen. Amen? I am. But you know what? The word of God is repetitive. Amen. We have four gospels for a reason. The Lord tells us again and again. You know why? Because we're thick and we forget. Amen? So we need to be reminded, and he's going to tell us in this morning's text, we need to be reminded, even though they knew, knew the word, and these early Christians were walking in it, he would continue to remind them. God knows how quickly and easily we can allow outward persecution and inward undermining of the truth of God's word to cause us to stumble, to take our eyes off the Lord. So what things do they remind him of? That we, are, we have divine power, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have an exceedingly great and precious promise, the focus of heaven. I know that some of you have reached out to me this week, and so in the last 12 months, it's been kind of rough on my family. You know, my mom died, and then my, my son died, and then this week, my brother unexpectedly died. So we had three generations in a year. But here's the good news. Heaven is better. I'm missing them hard. I miss them day, every day, and my heart breaks, and, and we grieve, but not as those without hope. But the good news is we have the promise of heaven. Amen? Amen. 
Though you close your eyes on earth, you open up upon glory. Christians don't die. We just move to a much better neighborhood. Amen? Death has no sting. And I'm thankful for that. And he was encouraging them in that, reminding them, because here they are being persecuted. And when you're persecuted, here's what you think. Well, God doesn't care about me. He's forgotten about me. You know, what about all the promises? Well, again, guys, the, the, the ultimate promise is what happens after this life is over. He came to the mind of life and life more abundant, but he gives us the promise of heaven. Thirdly, we've escaped the corruption of this world. This is not our home anymore. The more people that I have in heaven, the more I long for heaven. Amen. The more my focus is there, and we are to continue to grow in faith, in actions, and attitudes. So first thing, the truth that we need to be reminded of constantly, and then second point, is that truth that was witnessed by men and testified by God. Again, like the false prophets who ran into an angel in the middle of nowhere that nobody else saw, the truth of who Jesus is is testified. The entire Old Testament is 39 books that all point to Jesus. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that all point to Jesus. Over 300 prophecies of the Messiah, all fulfilled by Jesus. Amen? Amen. How many of you were born of a virgin? Raise your hand. You wouldn't have to celebrate Mother's Day. <laughs> None of us. And if your mom told you where, she's lying. Amen? How many of you knew what city you were going to be born in before you were born? And again, that's just two of the 300 prophecies that he would be born in Bethlehem, written 700 years before he was born, and he would be born of a virgin, and that's exactly what happened. That's how we know that we serve the true and living God, that plus 298 more prophecies that come along with it. And then finally, truth that is proven by the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And again, we won't look at 300 prophecies, but we will look at a few this morning so that you can know that you know that you know that you know that the word of God is true. Because again, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is the Messiah. He is Almighty God. So let's pick up there in verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 1, truth that we need to be reminded of constantly. It says, for this reason, I will not neglect to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. For what reason? Well, the previous text that we read, and I'm going to go over those attributes here in a few minutes, but he talks about the things that should be evident in the life of a believer, things that we should see and exhortations on how we ought to live our lives. Now, again, we don't, we're not saved because we're good, because if we were, none of us would be saved. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, we only think we're good because we compare ourselves to other people, and no doubt compared to the worst people on the planet, all of us are good. But we're compared to Jesus Christ. Now, how we doing? Amen. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're compared to Christ. We fall short, but then he, he exhorts us and encourages us again that the fruit of salvation, when you've been born again, when you recognize you're a sinner, you've given your life to Jesus Christ, he comes to live inside of you and your behavior changes. You're not sinless, but you should sin less. Amen. And now you're new creations in Christ and you, the Lord walks with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's written your name in the Lamb's book of life. You have the promise of heaven. And again, he offers it universally, must be accepted individually. And he's reminding them of the good works that should follow. So good works don't save you, but good works are fruit that you've been saved. Because you've given your life to the Lord, your priorities should change. Your passion should change. The way you treat other people should change. He says, make your call and election sure. 
It's what he said earlier in the previous text. So that you will never stumble, that an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. Now, I've done hundreds of memorial services in my lifetime, and I've never met anybody that didn't think their family member was in heaven. And certainly, we would hope that that is absolutely true. But the reality is, we don't get to heaven because we're good. And we don't get to heaven because we're better than... God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades at the cross. Amen? doesn't compare you to other people. He says, what have you done with God's son? And he said, because of where you're headed, because of who you know, I want to remind you of these things. They're the foundation in both a faithful walk and a heavenly inheritance that we should not neglect. He says, I will not neglect. For this reason, I will not neglect. The word there is not to care, not plus care. I'm, I'm going to care. I want you to hear it. I want you to be reminded and that's why I had a couple one time when I was pastoring in Santa Cruz come up to me and say, hey, pastor, we're not coming on Sundays anymore because we've read the New Testament. We're just going to come on Wednesdays for the Old Testament. And I'm like, okay, this is not Moby Dick. This is the Bible. This is the living, breathing word of God that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Now, by God's grace, I don't know how many times I read through the Bible, but it's many, many, many. And guess what? Every time I read a chapter, even if I've read it a hundred times, God still speaks to me because this is the living, breathing word of God. Amen? And we're to desire the word of God more than our necessary food, the Bible says. He says, I'm going to remind you, and the Lord reminds us. I truly believe this. I think you could read the same chapter every day for a year and get ministered to every time you read it because God's word is living. So Peter would not be careless concerning the truth and the basics of Christian living. He would remind them again and again and again. And then he says, to remind you always. The form of the word there is to remind repeatedly, to admonish, to bring repent, remembrance. And again, I know it's true that even though I've been a, a pastor 34 years and a Christian for 54 years, that I still feel like I'm about two inches deep in the ocean when it comes to God's word. Because God's word, again, there's so much depth to it. There's so much truth to it. And again, I can never come to a place where I've arrived in my understanding completely of the word of God. And he says there always, that means perpetually, every single time. Peter would not be shy about reminding them again and again and again. If you guys have known me, I'm not shy about it either. I'll remind you and I'll remind me again and again and again. And he says there at the rest of that verse, you know and are established in the present truth. Even though they knew it and were walking in it, he would continue to remind them. God is not shy about reminding us again and again. He knows how quickly and how easily we can allow outward persecution and inward undermining of the truth of God's word first to cause us to stumble. We get, look, here's the reality. Most of us have other influences more time than we spend time in the word. Can I get an amen to that? The internet, social media, the news, all those things that are taking place. And much, if not most of it, comes from an ungodly perspective. And because we're bombarded with that constantly, if we don't spend time in the Word of God, we might be drawn away by what we're hearing from the world. Now, as Christians, we don't check our brains at the door. That would be superstition. Amen? I'm not afraid to read anything. I'm not afraid of what anybody else has to say because I know the truth and, it's, and I'm not arrogant about it. I'm, I'm blown away that I, by God's grace that I know the truth. And because I know the truth, I'm not affected by a lie. But if you hear lies long enough, this is what happens to a lot of high schoolers. Praise God for our youth group, amen? Yeah. Praise God for godly 
youth pastors who teach the word and love our kids. And, but at the same time, a lot of times you go away to school and then you get bombarded eight hours a day by people teaching you something else. I had a philosophy teacher that was a train wreck. Just, his first day of class, he said, if anybody here believes in absolute truth, stand up and I'll make a fool out of you. And he mocked Christianity openly. And he said, anybody who believes in the Bible is an idiot. And this guy goes on and on. He had the stage. He had the position. I ended up getting dropped out of the class because he and I had some conflicts. Didn't go so well. And the reality is that, guys, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to spend time in God's word because we are going to have influences from the world. Amen? Amen? And we need to know what we believe. We need to hear God's word because the things of the world will cause us to stumble, to get our eyes off of the Lord and on our circumstances, to forget who we are in Christ and the depths of the greatness of who he is. By the way, our God's greater than you think. Amen? Amen. No matter how great you think he is, he's greater than that. No matter how powerful you think he is, he's more powerful than that. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to be blown away by the power and the grace and the, just the, the omniscience of our God. He's all-knowing, almighty, and all-powerful. And he's adopted us into his family. He'd rather die than live without you. He proved it on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Amen. That's the God that we serve. And the world wants to attack that. We don't really know what persecution is, but it's coming. It's more lately than it's ever been in this country. But in those days, there again, we're being fed to lions. We need to be reminded again and again so we're not quick to forget our Lord, our God, our Savior, and our King. And again, I've been told many times that I'm too repetitive, but that might be true. But at the same time, I want to be faithful to tell you again and again and again. Who's writing this letter? Peter. It's, not, it's, it's in the name of the book. It shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> Who knows the most about stumbling of all the apostles? Who would that be? Peter. Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. I will never deny you. I don't care if it costs me my life. And he said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And we know that he was there when Jesus had been beaten. He was taken out. And some girl said, you're one of his followers. And he cusses and says he doesn't know the Lord and runs away bitterly. Now we know after Jesus rose from the dead, he said, go tell my disciples and especially Peter that I have risen. That down at the Sea of Galilee, they sit together and three times he says, if you love, do you love me, Peter? He gives him a chance after denying him three times to confess him three times. So if anybody knows about stumbling, it's Peter. And he's writing this letter encouraging him, don't stumble. I've been there. I did it. I got so worried about the people around me, I was started to walk in fear. And, and God's, God's kind of given us a spirit of fear and we don't need to be afraid. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you, will, you won't be. He says, I prayed for you in Luke 22 that your faith may not fail and once again be strengthened by your brothers. He said, so what are these things that we need to be reminded of? What are these things? Again, we looked at them in the last couple of weeks and four things I wrote down here. Now you have divine power. God Almighty living inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We must remember that he will never leave you nor forsake you. They felt outmanned and outnumbered. They were hiding in other people's houses. They were having to trust someone else to provide for them because they had to run from their lives from Jerusalem as Caesar Nero was hunting down Christians and killing them. And so here they are in hiding and he wants to remind them the Holy Spirit still lives inside of you and you're not alone. Number two, that they had great promises to focus on the promises in God's word, not the world's persecution. God's promises never change. The world changes all the time. Amen? And God's word is true. 
and most of what we hear from the world is not. We've escaped the corruption of this world, no longer bound by or linked to uh, the dead centers we once were. This is not our home. We're just here recruiting for heaven. Amen. And then we are to continue to grow in faith. Let me ask you this. Are you closer to the Lord this week than you were last week? Are you closer to the Lord this year than you were last year? And we're as close to God as we want to be. So we, it, when we spend time in his word, we spend time in his presence, we will grow in our relationship with him. Faith is a profession, not the, fin, uh, the beginning, not the finish line. Uh, when, we're, when we give our life to the Lord, there's so much more. Now, here are the, the things that he talked about. He's saying, for this reason. Here's what he told to us, adding to our faith. First of all, virtue. The word, we talked about this last week. It means moral excellence, godly courage. By the way, Proverbs 31 says, a virtuous wife who can find one, her worth is far above rubies. Amen? And the same thing about that same thing about virtuous moms. Amen? Growing virtue, growing knowledge, a growing knowledge of him and love for him in self-control. Godly discipline empowered by the Holy Spirit. Being out of control is not a godly attribute. When you say someone's out of control, is that a good thing? Is that the guy you want to hire? Is that the guy you want your daughter dating? He's out of control. I'd love you to meet him. No. <laughs> a godly attribute is self-control. Amen? Perseverance, steadfast endurance in the face of difficulty. Again, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And it's once we're in the storms of life and we keep our eyes on the Lord and we don't waver in our walk, that's perseverance. Godliness, a reverence and respect and piety towards God. Do you have a heart of worship? Do you love the Lord? Are you unashamed of him? The world mocks him. The world uses his name more as a curse word than as an act of worship. And we as believers should grow in godliness, in brotherly kindness, a, a, a family love for the body of Christ. I love coming here because every time we have a church, it's like a family reunion. Amen? That's why I hug everybody. If Jesus was here, he'd hug you. We, and again, so it's our family. We come together and we have a supernatural love for each other. It's been said that blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit's thicker than blood. Amen? Then he talks about the end love. It's a selfless love that originates with God and flows through us. So the, in light of all of these things, how now shall you respond? How now shall you live? He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his sin. May we never grow weary of being reminded again and again of the basics of Christian faith. Verse 13, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. Now, I love this because what did Paul, what did, you know, we knew Paul was a tent maker. Peter uses the term of a tent here. What is a tent? It's a temporary home. Amen? Unless you live in downtown LA, maybe. Not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but tents are temporary. And we don't invest a lot in tents because we know that's not our, our permanent home. Amen? We might spend money on them, but we don't invest like we do in our permanent home. And he's talking about, he says, as long as I'm in this tent, and that tent he's talking about is this body we live in. This is a temporary body. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen? The older I get, the more this thing is falling apart. <laughs> right? You know how you know it's falling apart? You took a shower this morning. At least I hope you did. Amen? I mean, if we just don't shower for three days, we could feel the decaying of our body right in front of us. We stinketh, amen? And so we, we, he said, as long as I'm in this tent, as long as I'm in this temporary body, because I know I have a heavenly one that's far better than this, that has not been impacted by sin, and I long for that. 
But as long as I'm in this tent, I will continue to remind you. Again, temporary dwelling places not intended for long-term living. Paul and Peter knew that tents are not intended. They eventually wear out and become unusable. And the apostle, the apostle wanted us to understand that these bodies that we live in are the same. We could try to maintain them. We should. We should be good stewards of the, the vessel God's given us, and we should do a good job with, in taking care of it, but also recognize that it's not permanent. It's not our final form. They're just temporary tabernacle, tabernacles for our spirit. Now, what is eternal is what's inside this tent. There's something inside of us, our, our spirit, that is eternal. So earth is not our home. We're just pilgrims and foreigners passing through. And Peter would remain faithful to remind him as long as he's in this temporary body. And so too you and I, as long as we're still breathing, uh, God's not through with you. No matter how old or young you are, God wants to use you. And God has a plan for your life. And they want to be reminded. You notice he says they're to stir you up. The word in the original language is to awaken, arouse from sleep, to render active. I know you know these things, but let me impact you by telling you once again. That's what he's saying. Hey guys, I know you know this. I know you're in hiding. I know you're afraid for your lives. I know, you know that you could be fed to lions tomorrow, but I want to remind you of who you are in the Lord. I want to waken you up to the fact that you're born again, that you're going to heaven, that you're a new creation in Christ, that I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that heaven is better. We're in indestructible until God is through with us. Amen? And we don't have to walk around in fear. Praise God for that. Verse 14, knowing shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Paul knows that his life's about to come to an end. Not long after writing this letter, he would be crucified, just like Jesus was. We'll talk about that, but, he, but we know from history, historical writings, that Peter didn't want to be crucified the way Jesus was to be compared to him, so he was crucified upside down because he did not want to be that close in the way that people would relate to him and Jesus because Jesus was a savior and he knew that he was not. So he knows his death is coming. Jesus had told him that he would die as a martyr. It says in John 21, after he said, do you love me, feed my sheep? And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, as it's talking about crucifixion, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken these things, he said to him, follow me. Hey, Peter, by the way, you're going to be crucified. Keep following me. And so when we hear that, you know, some of us, we doubt the Lord, when we're not on the cruise ship to heaven, I thought if I gave my life to Jesus, everything would be perfect. You know, Lord, it's not fair that my mom and my son and my brother all went to heaven in a year. What's, I thought you loved me. No, that's not the response because, again, if we have an eternal focus, they're all doing better than we are. Amen? Amen. I know that Rocky's great-grandmother just went to heaven. She's doing better than we are. Amen? And so praise the Lord for his love and his grace and his mercy and following him does not mean that our life will be easy here, but it's going to be amazing there. Amen. And while we're here, we live a life where we have joy because we have an eternal perspective. Peter understood that Jesus and Jesus had made it clear to him. The time here is short. 
And now he's at the end of his life. It's his last chance to point people to Jesus, and he's being really direct. And praise God for that. Verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. He said, look, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you, and then after I've gone to heaven, I'm going to leave a reminder for you, and we're reading it right now 2,000 years later. Amen? Here we have this letter that was written down as Peter was being persecuted. And now as we go through difficulties in our life, that same letter he wrote to those early Christians is a letter that applies to us today. Peter was conscious of the legacy he was leaving behind. I hope you are. I hope I am. Amen. Do you ever think about, again, it won't really matter ultimately, but do you ever think of what they'll say about you at your funeral? And I'm not worried about being popular with men, but I hope, I would hope for all of us that the focus of our memorial service would be Jesus. Because heaven is better. Amen? Amen. And the focus should be our love for the Lord and our love for God's people, a love for all people. He knew this was his last chance, and he said, Look, I'm gonna be careful to make sure that after I'm gone, that I will leave something behind as a reminder for you. His influence would outlast his life. Again, mark of a life well spent is it continues to have an impact on the world even after you're gone. Good impact for God's kingdom, a lasting legacy. You know, three thoughts that will change our lives. My body is temporary, that's what he said. My life could end at any minute, and I want to leave a lasting legacy. I want to invest in things that will outlast this life. You heard me say it a hundred times, I'm repetitive. Here it comes again. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. All this stuff that we think is so important, that ding in your car, nobody cares. <laughs> you know, all those things that we get so upset about and so burdened over, and again, you know, we, we should be good stewards of the things that we possess, but none of that will matter in eternity. My brother Mark, who just went to heaven, is not worried about the, the, the house that he left behind or the trucks that he had or his concrete, but he's not worried about any of that. He's in heaven now, Amen. And that's true for all of us if we know the Lord. And so we, our bodies are temporary. My life could end at any time. And I want to leave a lasting legacy behind me. And that legacy isn't how much money I left behind, but how many people I ministered to and hopefully have trained them up in their relationship with the Lord. So point number one, truth that we need to be reminded of constantly. We saw even though they knew the word and were walking in it, he would continually remind them. Why? So they wouldn't stumble so they would keep their eyes on the Lord in their circumstances. They wouldn't forget who we are in Christ. And then finally, again, the depths of the greatness of who our Savior is. Point number two, truth that is witnessed by men and testified by God. Look at verse 16. For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Now, if you have a Bible that's your own or you're borrowing one of ours, underline that verse. He said there's cunningly devised fables. The word fable there is muthos, where we get myths. And those who reject the gospel and the biblical record think that they are just a bunch of myths. If a man made Jesus, well, there's no proof that Jesus even existed. I had a guy tell me that. I go, what year is it, bro? What year is it at the time, you know, 2019? 2019 years since what? Anno Domini means in the year of our Lord. Amen? Amen. 
BC means what? Before Christ. So everything in the world is dated on when he came, but he didn't exist? Stop. There's 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. That's only possible because God wrote it, and the entire message of this entire book is pointing to that fact that Jesus Christ is God, that he's the only way to heaven, that he came and suffered and died, that you might have eternal life. Amen? Amen. So people will say that, though. Well, I, I believe it's a myth. Okay. By the way, what you believe means nothing. What I mean by that is, you can, if you believe one plus one is four, and you believe that your whole life, you're just wrong your whole life. If you believe there's 47 genders, you're wrong. Two. Can I get an amen to that? It's the Bible. It's all an attack on the Word of God. If you think it went from the goo to the zoo to you by random chance, as opposed to a creator of the universe, you're wrong. Amen? See, the Bible is true. The Word of God is true. Why historical and archaeological evidence do nothing but confirm the Bible's 100% accuracy. They just found another city this year that they said didn't exist and everybody mocked and they kept shoveling dirt and they found it and went, oh, guess what? The Bible's right again. Every time they unshovel dirt in the Middle East, they find out the word of God is true. So Peter here declares that the testimony of the apostles, they, how they had endured torture and gave their lives for, was not based on clever myths or man-made truths, but eyewitness testimonies. See, all these apostles, they walk with Jesus for three years. And then they saw him being put to death. And then they went to the empty tomb. And then they saw him after he rose from the dead. There are myths that say that the body of Jesus was stolen. Well, there was 600 Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. And if they, you know, the, the penalty for not, for again, the body being stolen would be their own death. And then you have the apostles who say they saw Jesus, who all died, who were all willing to be put to death for what they believed. If they were lying, they would have changed their mind. Amen? But you know the greatest proof that Jesus is alive? It's the, the millions and millions and millions and millions of lives that have been transformed because of him. Amen? You're a walking and breathing miracle if you've given your life to the Lord. We can, re we can reliably re reconstruct uh, historical events from the testimony by witnesses who must be checked to see if they're telling the truth. The New Testament writers have been checked for centuries and have been found truthful. Eyewitnesses of his majesty, he says there. What is he talking about? We have an eyewitnesses of his majesty. He could have been talking about when he healed the lame or the blind or the sick. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that? He brings her into the house. His mother-in-law, he, he raises her from the dead and she starts making soup. So when God transforms our life, we should start serving him. Can I get an amen to that? He didn't save you so you could go lay on a brick somewhere. He saved you so you could serve and be a part of him. He raised people from the dead. They saw it. Lazarus, Jeru's daughter. He calmed the storm. They were all in the boat, scared half to death. By the way, storms got to be big when fishermen are scared. Amen? Amen? I've been on boats with fishermen when they're not scared, when I've been petrified. I'm like, if those guys are scared, there's some big waves. And they were panicking, and Jesus was in the boat. What was he doing? Sleeping. He was sleeping. And then he got up and said, peace be still, and the storm went away. They saw that. They beheld his majesty. Uh, Peter walked on the water for a second. But he saw Jesus walking on the water, appearing to him in the midst of the storm. What a perfect picture for us, because in the storms of life is when we need to be looking for Jesus, because he's there. Amen. Amen? You're not alone. 
And we always give Peter a hard time for sinking, but at least Peter got out of the boat. <laughs> Amen? They saw him feed 5,000 with, with uh, we might need that soon with inflation. Amen? But he fed 5,000 with one boy's lunch. They saw it happen. They saw him when he was crucified, when he rose from the dead, when he restored Peter to ministry. The reference here is also to the Mount of Transfiguration, because all those other things are true. But as we read on, take a look there in verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from heaven, excellent glory, the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father never said that about Buddha, never said it about Muhammad, never said it about Charles Taze Russell, founder of uh, religious science, never said it about Joseph Smith, amen, never said it about the, the founders of Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, all, those other, all those other spiritual leaders are dead. They're in the ground. We can dig up their bones. I've been to the tomb of Jesus Christ. It's empty. He's a risen living Savior who's triumphed over sin and death. Amen? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Peter gives the quote, but he doesn't give the context. Let me tell you when this happened. It happened twice. The first time it happened was Jesus was 30 years old. He began his public ministry. He was coming to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is forerunner of the faith said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For thousands of years, they've been sacrificing lambs, looking forward to the coming Messiah. He said, this is the Lamb. This is the one we've been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of all the sacrifices that have been taking place for thousands of years. Well, what happens is after Jesus was baptized, as the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, the sky opened up and God the Father said audibly from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now the majesty, Peter was not, at that, was not there that time. But one more time, those same words were spoken. They went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. This is toward the end of Jesus' earthly life. Not long before he would go to the cross. Peter, James, and John are with him, and they're all asleep. By the way, they're always napping when they're supposed to be praying and hanging out with Jesus. The apostles, not the apostles. So here's what happens. They wake up. They wake up, and what do they see? Jesus, who else? Moses and Elijah, and they're in their glorified bodies. Jesus was turned inside out. They saw, they saw him in his perfection. And when they saw them, they were blown away as well we all will be. Amen? Amen. And many people believe, again, that Elijah and Moses are, even though he's God, they're encouraging him or ministering to the Lord as he prepares to go to the cross. But here's Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter goes, I got an idea. Let's make three tabernacles, one for each of you. We'll just stay here forever. And the sky opens up. And, the God, and God says to Peter, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then he adds two words to the end of it. Hear him. Peter, shut up. Listen to the Lord. He's God, you're not. Two undeniable facts, there is a God, you're not him. Amen? Amen? And what he was trying to do was make Moses and Elijah on the same plane with Jesus. The law and the prophets are not equal to Jesus. They point to Jesus. Amen? Amen. And see, 
We can have that same problem. When you get real legalistic with the word of God, you'll read someone says, well, see here, you're not supposed to do this. And so you know, I thought you were saved. I heard you have a television in your house. I thought you were saved. And all this kind of stuff where they'll take a word of God. And here's, here's legalism. Legalism is where I make a personal conviction, a requirement for your salvation. That's legalism. And what's happened is we don't ever put, now praise God for the law and praise God for the prophets because they all point to Jesus, but they're not equal with Jesus. Amen? Amen? It's always pointing to the Lord. And so he shares the words, but not the context when he was rebuked again, not knowing what to say. Oh, it's good for us to be here. That's true. Let us build three tabernacles, one for Moses. And again, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And putting Jesus on the same level as the prophets, it provoked our heavenly father to speak. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid, it says in the text. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. You know what? If you're walking in fear right now, the Lord would tell you, arise and do not be afraid. Amen? As believers, we have nothing to be afraid of. Again, God has not given us a spirit of fear but a power and love in a sound mind. It says when, he lift, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw Jesus only. The law and the prophets weren't there anymore because they were always pointing to the Lord and he, and he alone is the answer. Jesus alone is the fulfillment of the law and prophets, but as powerful as the eyewitness testimony is, there's a far greater testimony. And what it is, it's our final point this morning, a more sure, sure word of prophecy. Greater than the testimony of men is the testimony of the prophetic word. Again, over 300 prophecies about the Messiah, all written as far as 4,000 years before he came, some of them 700 years before he came, all about the Messiah, talking all about him, and Jesus fulfills all of it. And again, that's why there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen? Now watch what he says here in verse 19, final point. Truth that is proven by the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Look what it says there in verse 19. So when they heard a voice from heaven, we have, we, ha we have been with him on the holy mountain. Then it says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as light shines in the dark place until the day dawn is, till the dawn, till day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he's saying, look, if you're walking in darkness and you want proof that Jesus is God, great place to start is to go read Bible prophecy. Again, written thousands of years, some of it before Jesus came, some of it 700 years before Jesus came. And when you read it, you will see Jesus all over it. I have a good friend of mine, named Scott Shear, and his dad, uh, Mort, they were Jewish. And pray, by the way, we love Jewish people because we have a Jewish savior and we have a book written by Jewish believers. Amen. So most of the early church was Jewish and praise God for the Jewish people. And we're all sinners saved by grace. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian nor Scythian. We're all one in Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, his dad worked for the same company I do and they used to do road books. And he came home one night after a long day at work and started reading his Gideon Bible that was in the drawer. And he was reading the Old Testament because he didn't believe in the New Testament because he was a professing Jew who rejected Jesus. And he started reading Isaiah 53. 
And in reading Isaiah 53, he thought he had accidentally flipped over to the New Testament because Jesus' crucifixion was so clear in Isaiah 53. You know what he did? He got down on his knees and gave his life to Jesus Christ. All of his kids ended up getting saved. He lived for the Lord for another 50 years, and now he's in heaven. Amen? Amen. See, if you open up the Old Testament, history is his story. Amen? It all points to him. He is the answer. And again, we don't believe in spite of the evidence. So the prophecy is confirmed, and we have more firm, again, the prophetic word. He had heard God's voice from heaven, but he says that the voice of God is amazing, but what's even more amazing is all the fulfilled prophecy. One-third of the Old Testament was prophetic when written. When they wrote it, they're writing about things that hadn't happened, and now virtually all of them have. There's still the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church that haven't taken place yet. Amen? But you look in the Old Testament and all these prophecies are written and they've all come to pass. Over 300 testify of the coming Messiah, all fulfilled in Christ. The volume of the book testifies of me, the Bible says. On the road to Emmaus, you guys remember this after Jesus rose from the dead? Before he ascended to heaven, he's walking along the road and he, he veils his his identity to two of the disciples, to the apostles. He's walking along with them, and then he begins to share with them everything about himself from the Old Testament. Now, if I could have the CD of any message ever, I want that one. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for hours and him going through the whole Old Testament and say, yeah, that pointed to me, that pointed to me, that pointed to me, that pointed to me, that pointed. And it says at the end of it, oh, how our hearts burned, and they were hanging on to Jesus. And then they saw him for who he was and they ran back and told the rest of the apostles, we saw him and he is the answer. The entire Bible points to Jesus. Here's how it works. Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation of man. If you don't have any problems with the first four words of the Bible, you won't have a problem with the rest of it. In the beginning, God. Amen? Amen. Where was God before we were here? He was there. Where was he before that? He was there. Where was he 10 billion years ago? He was there. Where was he? You got your head, your head's exploding because we're finite men and women trying to understand infinite God. But give, you want your head to explode? God created time and space. So what was there before time and space? I don't know. <laughs> Amen? Our God is greater. So chapter 1 and 2 is the creation of man. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. Adam and Eve in the garden. Before, before they fell, do you know they walked in the cool of the day? They could just talk to God, have intimate fellowship with him. They were naked and unashamed, the Bible says. Nothing died, no one died. Plants didn't die, people didn't die, nothing died. They walked in the garden. And then what happened? They were told, you can, have, you can do anything you want, touch anything you want, just not that one tree right there. And then what's human nature? You can ride any animal in the zoo, just not the zebra. Everybody's over there trying to get on the zebra. <laughs> so what do they do? She goes to, and, and Satan tempts her. The serpent tempts her. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you'll be like him. And what's the ultimate picture of every cult out there? They think they're going to be like God. Amen? And so she takes the fruit and eats it, gives it to Adam. He eats it. And it says that she will have pain in childbirth. And that he will toil by the sweat of his brow all the days of his life. So if you're working hard, that's Adam's, Adam and Eve's fault. And when you're delivering that baby, Carolyn, blame it on Eve. Amen? <laughs> Genesis. <laughs> Amen. Amen, Chris. 
from Genesis 4 to the end of Revelation, it's all speaking of God's plan for man's redemption. Chapter 1 and 2 is creation. Chapter 3 is the fall of man. We fall into, so what happened? When we sin, the word sin, there's an archery term, we're separated from God. Again, the, the term is how close you land from the bullseye to where your arrow lands. It's called the sin distance. It's a distance of imperfection, how far away you are from perfection. So whether you're an inch away or a million miles away, you're still a sinner. Amen? And so we are separated from God because he's perfect and holy and can't have sin in his presence. So while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to pay the price for our sin so that we could become holy again and we could be in his presence. Amen? So from chapter four on, the whole Bible is about man. man was created perfect, man fell. Here's God's plan to restore simple man back to holy God. That's why nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian, amen? That's why we study all of it, amen? It's all in there for a reason. Immediately, the Bible began to speak of Messiah. It says he will bruise his heel and he will crush his head, speaking of Satan. When did he do that? says that he, the Messiah will, he will bruise his heel and crush his head. Speaking of the serpent who had just deceived him. On the cross of Calvary. Amen? Amen. Satan was defeated. Fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Again, I love that picture. Able to paint a portrait of a face that all would recognize when they saw him. Somebody used that analogy. If you gave a, a good artist 300 strokes with, a, pen, with, a, with a, a brush, only one stroke wouldn't be enough. But if you had 300 strokes, you'd be able to recognize what he was painting when he was done. Amen? And 300 prophecies narrow it down to there's no other answer. When you get to about 10 prophecies, it's already game over. But there's 300 prophecies pointing to the Messiah. Let me give you just a few. Isaiah says the Messiah would be born. That means he's a, he would be a man, not an angel. Amen? Amen? That he would take on humanity, and he would come to earth and take on humanity. Micah says, not only born, but born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. And there was a great picture of, the, of Jesus coming in Rachel. Now, Rachel, again, was married to Jacob. Israel would become his name, amen. And she was headed to her hometown, which was, had another name at the time, but it, it was Bethlehem. And outside the city gate of Bethlehem, she dies in childbirth. And she wants to name her, same, her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. And then Jacob said, I'm not naming my son that. So we're going to name him Ben-Hamin, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And what's interesting, born outside of Bethlehem, and the Bible says that Jesus is acquainted with our sorrows and our griefs, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Bible rocks, Amen. Even that prophetic moment was always pointing to Jesus. A descendant of Abraham, the Bible says, Isaac and Jacob, a descendant of David, keep narrowing the line. If you're coming to 1 Chronicles, all those genealogies are narrowing it down, pointing to Jesus. Isaiah, here's the one that gets most people, born of a virgin. There's other people born in Bethlehem. Nobody else born of a virgin. Amen? 700 years before his birth. It was spoken that he will be the son of God in human flesh. It says later he would have a forerunner who would go before him and tell others about him. Well, that was John the Baptist. It says he would be betrayed by a close friend. And then it goes on, Judas, and then it goes on to say he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 
If it was 29 pieces of silver, the Bible's wrong. The Bible's never wrong. If it was 30 pieces of silver prophesied 740 years before it happened. The Bible rocks. Amen? Amen. It says he would die. This is unthinkable to the early believers because they're like, well, Messiah can't die. How would the Messiah die? Well, it was prophesied that he would die, that he would be crucified, prophesied hundreds of years before, both in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, that he would be crucified between two transgressors, Jesus crucified between two thieves, amen? Again, prophesied hundreds of years before he went to the cross. It says he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, amen? And then it says, it was prophesied that he would raise from the dead. Now that's about a dozen of the 300. There's many, many more. You want to get more specific? See, the thing about the Bible, when it gives prophecy, it's specific. People, you go to a, first of all, if you go to a psychic, repent. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but you'll go to somebody who says things, they'll, they'll give you some vague thing. You're going to meet a dark-haired man tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> You want some prophecy that's specific? Let me give you this one. It's in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, it tells us that 483 years from the command to restore and rebuild the temple, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem, until the coming of the Messiah. And so in those days, they had 360-day years. They They weren't 365 yet, 360. You multiply 483 times 360, you have 173,880 days. You get a calendar from the decree in, on March 14th, 445 BC, King Artaxerxes commanded Nehemiah to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And 173,880 days later, on April 6th, 32 AD, on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem. Guys, the Bible rocks. The word is true. Amen? Amen. Is that specific enough? It's in the word. Everybody shouting, Hosanna, save now we pray you. And again, faith not based on the miraculous. Why were people lined up that day? No doubt some of them had been told and they had learned, that, well, he's coming. It says the Messiah's coming. We know when it was built, the time is coming. So they're all lined up waiting for the Messiah. And here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. Again, just as prophecy had been foretold. A more sure word of prophecy, fulfillment of 300 Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, painting a clear and perfect picture of Christ alone. Anybody who doesn't fulfill even one of those prophecies cannot be the Messiah. Amen? So anybody else that points you to any other savior, when when was Muhammad born of a virgin? Was Muhammad born in Bethlehem? Did Muhammad go down the list? Did he march into Jerusalem on March 6th? No, he wasn't born yet. Amen? Amen? So guys, the word of God is true, and if they do not fulfill them all, they are false prophets. Notice it says there, uh, a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The more sure word of prophecy held on to tightly until Jesus, the bright and morning star, comes again. How many of you know that Jesus Christ is coming back? It start, in Luke 14, you see in the first three verses there, the proclamation of the rapture. When you go to the book of Revelation, you have the church age in chapter two and chapter three. In chapter four, verse one, you see John, who's prophesying, being called up, and he has a heavenly perspective, and you do not see the church mentioned again until we get to the end of the book when we come back with the Lord. Amen? Amen. 
People say, well, rapture's nowhere in the Bible. Well, if you read it, yes, it is. Amen? Finally, two verses, he says, knowing this verse, that no prophecy or scripture is of any private interpretation. So when someone comes to you and says, I found something in the Bible, and I'm the only one who's ever seen it, and here's what it says, and then it contradicts what the Bible says, we know he's a liar, amen? Amen. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Amen? Amen? The word of God has been confirmed by thousands, by millions of people. Amen? And so when somebody comes and says, I found something new that no one else has seen. I, I, you know, most of you guys know I, go, I used to go to India every year and I teach up to a thousand pastors how to study and teach the Bible. And the guy, one guy would say to me, I just want a new thing that nobody else has ever found. That you're on your way to being a culture. Because there isn't anything in the word of God that no one else has ever found. Amen? By the way, it's the most studied book ever. And praise God for it. It's still the bestseller ever too, amen? The word didn't originate with man, it originated with the Holy Spirit. People will say to you, well, the Bible is written by men. Yeah, okay, men penned it, but they were tools in the hands of the master because if you got three guys in the room to pen something that somebody told them, they would contradict itself all over the place. If you have 40 different authors over 1,500 years writing and having it all fit together perfectly with no contradictions, that's only possible because God wrote it. Amen? Amen. We're just tools in the hands of the master. The word of God given by the Holy Spirit, it's a plumb line. This is what we test everything against. Right now it's, well, I just feel I was born this way. Okay, well, we all were born sinners. Okay? And so because you have a feeling doesn't mean, do your feelings lie to you sometimes? What's the answer? Okay? So when we have a feeling, what do we check that against? The Bible. We don't try to get as many people as we can to agree that our feeling is right. And that's what the world does today. Well, here's how I feel. You don't believe that's true. No, I don't. But you don't believe it's true. No, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't believe it's true. Well, why don't you believe it's true? Because the Bible says it's not. Well, this is how I feel. Well, you're free to feel that way, but it's just not true because the Bible says so. But I don't like that you don't believe that. Well, you can, you can live however you want to live, but the Bible says it's not true. And then at the end, they'll go, well, but I want you to believe what I believe and say what I believe is okay, but you won't do that. No, I won't do that. See, you're a bigot. See, here's what happens is if you stand with the word of God all of a sudden and you don't affirm someone's sinful behavior and the choices that they're making, they say that you're a bigot. Why? Because they don't want to live according to the truth of God's word. They want to be led by their feelings. Amen? Amen? We're all born selfish. If you ever have to teach their children to say mine, or do they figure that out all on themselves? Born sinners. Please don't get mad at me. Even Rocky May. I'm sure she's perfect to her grandparents, but it's all like my grandkids. They're all sinners. They need you. That's why they got parents. Can I get an amen to that? So it's mine, mine. We, we grow up sinful, self-centered, self-focused. Guys, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you die to yourself. You become a new creation in Christ. You're born again. You have the promise of heaven. Holy Spirit convicts you and he comforts you and he leads you and he guides you and he's the down payment on heaven. Amen? Amen. And praise God for that. And finally it says, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Everybody has the Holy Spirit. He's either with you, in you, or upon you. He's with the world. That's how they know right from wrong. They call him their conscience. How does someone know, well, yeah, it's probably not a good idea to harm small children. 
How do they know that? That's the Holy Spirit. But see, that person doesn't know the Lord yet, but that's, he's the one that makes right and wrong. We're born without the knowledge. right. But once we give our life to the Lord, he goes from being with us to being in us. And once he's in us, there's a greater understanding of right and wrong. He never leaves us. And then the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon us, whether it's baptism of the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And now that Spirit should flow out of us on people around us. Amen? So in closing, the more sure word of prophecy, the truth that we need to be reminded of constantly, we need to hear it again and again and again. Have you ever noticed, let's be honest, have you ever noticed if you go a certain amount of time without opening up your Bible or being in fellowship that your life starts going off course? Anybody want to raise their hand that that's happened to them? I remember years ago, when before we had children, I, I was in Kansas City working. Lynette was in California still. I was opening a new office. My hours were crazy. And I looked up, and I'd gone a month without being at church. I was in my early 20s, without going to church or reading my Bible. I was so busy at work and so trying to get things done. And I looked up, and I realized, what a mess, how far away that my, the, the, my thought life changed. Everything changes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... We need to be in the Word of God every day, amen? Constantly be in the Word, or we may stumble, or our eyes will fall away from the Lord. Then finally, truth was witnessed by men, testified by God. So the miracles were seen by thousands. The messages were heard by thousands. We saw the majesty of God, and then God testified himself, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, both at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then finally, truth that is proven by the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, over 300 prophecies testified of the coming Messiah, all fulfilled by Jesus, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, would have a forerunner, John the Baptist, betrayed by a close friend, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would die. He would be crucified. He'd be crucified between two transgressors. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, and he would raise from the dead, and many, many more. Guys, that's our Savior. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are indeed a great and awesome God. And Lord, we know that we don't believe in spite of the evidence. Again, that would be superstition. We know that the word of God is true, that you wrote it down. And then, Lord, you've made it clear to us by giving us a gift, a down payment on heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that we have the promise of eternal life. I thank you, Lord, that my brother Mark closed his eyes on earth and opened him up in heaven. I thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you, Lord, that you love us enough that you wrote it down for us and gave us the Holy Spirit that we might understand it. Lord, I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you're betting your eternity on your good works, but hopefully you recognize now that there's, you're, you're not good enough to get into heaven. Here's the good news. You're not bad enough that you can't be saved. You're not so good that you don't need to be saved. We all need to be saved. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. I'm gonna give you a chance to confess it right now by just raising your hand and I will pray with you. Say, look, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm ready to surrender my life to the Lord. I want his Holy Spirit to come and live inside of me and I wanna have the promise of eternal life. If that's your desire, if you've never done that before, just raise your hand and I'll pray with you. Anybody at all? Today be the day of salvation. Don't leave here without him. He loves you so much, you'd rather die than live without you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are indeed a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said...